So when I thought about putting together this last panel on the challenges facing, I thought it would be very interesting to put uh, together uh, the editor-in-chief of pharmaceutical executive, Lisa Henderson, because she looks more broadly and reports on the industry, uh, you know, with, with Mike Chi, who is the head of all of the business development and Biogen, and has been, you know, a very senior person in other, other companies like Sanofi and so forth. Because they're, they look at it, they have a broad view, but also they look at it from a, from a, from a different perspective. So uh, now, this topic, we could go along for four or five hours, but we, so we won't do that. But we, I thought we'd do is pick just a couple of areas and um, really uh, just give your comments in those areas. I think one of the issues I think that both of you thought were evolving issues uh, was uh, this whole issue of uh, digital for patient care and so forth. And so I guess the first question is, from your individual perspectives, what do you think either the opportunity or the challenges in that area for companies in the, in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, I think for, for, for pharma companies, the, the point of digital is just to get closer to the patient and the patient journey. So I think that is going to be a huge driver in terms of the suite of offerings that we think about offering the patient. Because it's not just the therapeutics, it's you know, how is how is the patient reacting to the therapeutics? Um, you know, what else can you do? What other offerings can you make to them to make their um, patient journey better? Um, just by way of example, are there are there physical rehab tools you can use for someone with multiple sclerosis? Mm -hmm. Is there some digital tools that can help them? So they don't have to necessarily go to a PT facility and something they can do on their own. Um, things like that, I think, will be an advantage. So um, I think Doug mentioned it briefly, but he didn't have the exact slide. He just, I think he went through the slide about the growth of the digital apps. And, um, and Stephen mentioned, you know, with clinical trials, that's where you see a lot of these touch points that you can have with patients, but that's only the beginning of the journey. So there is that whole journey with um, the care, the outcomes, and then the adherence and that kind of thing. So I just think it's going to continue to grow. There are so many, I don't, I don't envy Stephen or any manufacturer trying to pick a vendor. I don't know how you do that because there are so many right now and they all are um, uh, have a different way and a different angle and it's, I think it's probably really difficult to filter through what's the best technology. Not to mention, you know, it has to be an FDA regulated. Um, if you're going to use that data, um, you know, further, uh, yeah, it, it needs to be approved. Yeah, one other thing I would say is besides that, there's also touched on there are regional differences. Yeah. And one app for the US may not be the best app for China or Japan. I mean or so you may have to really kind of carve off how you think about digital, but how do you fit that with your mobile brand? You know, so the other part of digital I think is fascinating, which is kind of going to what Stephen said. It's like the, the ability to use clinical data or scans or things like that and how do you incorporate that into the patient care. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, wearables, right? You've got a cardiac patient. How, you know, how do you use that data to monitor how they're doing? Um, yeah, exactly. you know, some of the some of the digital data is benefits just the patient and yeah. their care, but others are linked into the data that might be useful for 
online project companies. Can you talk about that, the ones that are developing and whether that's really going to be helpful or not? I think the the data is helpful. I think one of the overlying issues is the privacy rules. I think that they vary again from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then I think um, you know, I think the data also has to be tied frankly to, to genetics and, and translational medicine at the end of the day. So and how do you do that with the regulatory schemes I have in place? It's not very apparent to me. I can marry all those systems and be consistent about it. Because what you the quality of the data you're getting from Europe versus the quality of the data you get from China in terms of genomics is very good. I mean, the United States is very good. And so how do you account for that? And the healthcare systems are different. And they're different in China, right? So that affects how that works. Please, um, I would just say that you, there's so much data out there. And you have to, I think, either integration is a major issue. And then, um, um, what was I going to say? Well, it went right out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and choosing the data that you want to, that you need to collect, you know, instead of just throwing it all out there and saying, you know, it's, it could be a bit much. I'm going to step back and take a little bit picture, because I was curious how the few answers this question, which is, I'm going to ask each of you, if you were to list the two or three biggest challenges that you see, and it could be in any area, it could be financial, it could be technology, development, whatever, that you see the, 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 the biopharma industry facing the next five, ten years, what would your list be? Well, okay, I know we're talking about challenges, but I also want to kind of stand back at the 10,000 foot level and say there's just remarkable advances mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in science and in the industry. When you think about cellular therapy and where gene therapy could go, um, there's a lot of potential there. So I think, you know, one of the, one of the critical questions is, is I think gene therapy is going to happen. I think it's going to be really impactful for a lot of diseases. But where's the line where gene therapy is worth it and where it's not worth it? And that's something society has to work out because it's going to be very expensive. But um, I think that's going to be that's going to be a challenge. Like, what does that business model look like? Do you pay for years of outcomes? Do you just pay one shot? And, and how do you, you know, how do you manage all of that? On top of that, I think um, it's going to take probably 20 years for us to really get it right because there's no long-term safety education. Well, in fact, one of the issues is cost. I mean, yeah. just because it works doesn't mean it's economic. Yeah. You know, I mean, Christopher Austin was talking about it. He would say it costs a million dollars to save someone's life, but it, it, it's tough math to say, why should I spend that today, you know, on some basis of amortizing with a person's lifetime. Yeah. And I think the other... Global issue is probably just the emergence of other markets, um, particularly I think China. Um, just the dollars and sheer force of that economy. I mean, it's something we all have to think about. And of course, the fact that it's a very predictable government action, you know, everything is protected, IP is protected, obviously, is a factor. Lisa, your, your list of the key challenges? So I just want to build on what Michael said and what. Christopher spoke about the huge amount of scientific advances. Just, I don't even know how people keep everything straight with everything. Because <laughs> even you said, like in the past 30 years, we've gone from here to here. So just, it just goes, the pace is so fast. 
the pace of biotech is so fast. Um, how the companies that come around, what they do, I don't know how, again, anyone stays on top of it. Um, but it's rewarding, and every person to a T that I've spoken to or interviewed um, during the COVID uh, in the space, the most dedicated people on the planet, really, in this, in this room. I, I just have to say that, but um, as far as challenges, it's that talent, I, I think like on another level, it's that HR issue, you know, we were talking about it, I think like this, what it, our company is going to look like post-COVID, how are we going to interrelate, how our company is going to manage. It's a, it's a major leadership and I think HR challenge. And then factor in your diversity and factor in, um, um, the remote and again, I'd say the talent, but where you're getting resourcing that talent. So, that's right. You know, I want to follow on. You mentioned China, which would match on my list. Is China is really kind of a dilemma, right? Because you know, if it was, if it was like Vietnam, you'd say, okay, well, all right, but it's a small market, so whether I succeed or don't succeed there, you know, it's not a big deal. But it's a huge market, but also there, there are a lot of dilemmas about the Chinese market, both in terms of how it operates, but also competition, et cetera, and so forth. Do you want to elaborate on well, your view? You, the tough decision is the amount of investment you're going to make in China for what kind of products you get in it. Because the country is so big, the infrastructure that you have to put in place has got to be big. So you have to have scale uh, to be effective there. I think AstraZeneca has been pretty good at it. Um, and then you overlay on that. On top of that, government pricing, right? that there are the, you know, the mandated government cuts of pricing, and you really have to make your returns in the first couple of years and be confident that you can do it with that infrastructure. Then, then you know, as the price goes down, you make less and less profit. With the, with like the Japanese. But what do you do with all that infrastructure that you have? So it's you kind of continue that lease in a sense. Once you get to a certain scale, it's pretty hard to keep up with that. You know? Lisa, any comments on China? China as an opportunity or, or a challenge? Um, I mean, I think it's a challenge, but I don't see it. it, it it's just going to develop. You know, right now, most of the issues um, are the supply chain. You know, and making sure that you have facilities in China or in in Asia Pac to get things to where they need to be. And I know that companies are still investing in that. So I, I still think. Well, you know, they, 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 in 2008, they used to use a phrase about financial institutions too big to fail. Yeah. And the phrase I like to use about China for the for, for pharma is it's too big to ignore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That you know, you, you have to have a position, whether you like it or not, you have to have some strategy, to, because it's too big, uh, you know, to ignore. Right? Yeah. There's also in China. There's also a huge amount of coming out of there. And there's a lot of companies formation going on. So the next wave is actually gonna be a lot of Chinese companies doing innovative things, I think. And be interested to see how the Chinese government reacts to that in terms of okay, you know, it's a home country, you know, homegrown company, homegrown market, how do we reward them with the competition? It's gonna be the United States and that's right. Yeah, speaking of that in terms of the, the, the Chinese biotech industry, as you know, uh, a couple of years ago, the Chinese government mentioned just a small list of industries that they wanted to be the quote 
leader by 2025. And then, of course, they regretted saying that because then it you know, created, put a target on everyone's back. But one was biotech, right? So to what extent should, should Western pharma and biotech companies worry about Chinese competition or not? I think you substitute. I mean, there's no answer. There's nothing you can do except compete. And uh, uh, you know, it's not like you can go in and buy Chinese biotechs. You know, so I think you have to compete on your own. You think they're they're advancing technology at at a rate that's going to be a problem, or is it just you know their willingness to start things up and, and get funding? It's both, and there's also a lot of talent. Like there's a lot of Asian executives who grew up in pharma here. We're going back there to start companies, and you know, there's a, a whole bunch of people that I know personally who, are, you know, they see your people at big farm and gone back and like, you know, I'm doing my, I got, I got, you know, a ton of money, and you know, for instance, like Lily Age Adventures, they've got a lot of money, and people are coming out with like 150 million dollar A rounds for Chinese biotech. So yeah, there's a lot of money. There. And that money can't come to the U.S. because of the CFIUS. Somehow, <laughs> yeah, well, right, right. The, the, because CFIUS, by the way, we don't know CFIUS. The U.S. It's a, actually a committee. Actually, my wife was on it one for a while when she was in Washington, and they look at any investments or ownerships, direct or indirect, in U.S. companies that might present some kind of threat, right? Yeah. And and traditionally, it's been in, in high tech, but They've been scrutinizing uh, in pharmaceutical biotech more and more. So it's 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 made it very difficult <coughs> for U.S. biotech companies to take money either from Chinese companies or Chinese venture companies. Mm -hmm. Any comment for the comment about China? No, I would just go to Michael's point that talent and you know mostly being here and learning pharma, being in pharma here and being educated in the schools here. And going back, I just, you know, there's, it's that whole capitalism, innovation, scientific, I mean, drive, you know, it's not just the money, it's like wanting to move the science forward. And I just wonder how that works with their government. That's, you know, I'm not a big uh, political science major, but, you know, I don't know <laughs> how that all goes. Well, in. there's a lot going on in China, yeah. and a lot going on between the U.S. and China, yeah. that's for sure. And anyone who says that they can exactly predict what's going to happen is uh, that individual, you know, drop. Yeah. Innovation. Yeah. yeah. So that's. Yeah. Sure. Uh, one of the things that we we had chat about before that was the relationship between biotech and, and big pharma. And I mentioned a little bit about that when I was going through the biotech and, and pharma and the and so forth. But the relationship has changed, right? And will continue to change. Any thoughts about that and how you see that relationship, how it's changed over the last five, ten years, and where you think it will head you know, going forward? Yeah, it's uh, that's an interesting question. I think the fundamental really fundamental relationship hasn't changed because you know, biotechs valuations will change, but the fundamentals have changed because biotechs need pharma at some point for global distribution because they can't do it. And so, if you're going to actually exploit your asset, you know whether it's through a partnership or an MA, you're going to need to partner up with someone who can get it to those other countries to to really maximize 
So there's always going to be that relationship. Um, I'm kind of curious about is all these biotechs that are going to be snapped up um, into pharma. You know, do they do they become innovation hubs within the companies, or do they do the people just leave and go do more biotech? I suspect it's the latter, mm -hmm. but you know, there's always the hope that maybe those things can spur some innovation with big pharma. But the problem with big pharma that I've been in is just um, decision making and budgeting is so diffuse that um, sometimes you just lose out because of a because of a budget priority to what innovation gets. Have you seen any pattern or differences in, in behavior? Among the big pharma about how they treat biotechs that they require in terms of you know giving them freedom or or, or not giving them freedom. Whatever. I think the tendency is give them freedom but realize no one will stay. Oh, I see. Okay. You give them the freedom in the hope that some people will stay, but you realize they're probably not going to. Because there's a reason they joined the, the biotech in the first place from a cultural standpoint. And you plug them into like a Pfizer, a Sanofi, a J, it's a very different field. So you better buy from the product yeah. and technology than the people because only maybe, one of them would, maybe, only one of them would stay. Yeah, maybe the exception is lots of them, right? So that management team was talking about that. Any comment about the, the biotech pharma relationship? So I took over pharmaceutical executive in at the end of 2000, no, the beginning of 2017. So I have to say, biotech became more of a focus of our coverage because you couldn't get away from it. You know, it was just that because to your point, that's where all the innovation was. And so what's my point? My point is um, there's a lot of crossover of talent between pharma and biotech. I don't know about the um, how the pharma treats biotech because then they buy them, but there's a lot of pharma that has presence in um, Innovation hubs, and I was asking Andy about how that might have changed the whole ecosystem in Cambridge. What what was that ecosystem like during COVID? You know how these interrelationships, cutting edge science, and the and the pharma being there, um, that continues. And and I've noticed, you know, our emerging pharma leaders that we do. Right. There's a lot more um, PhDs that come out and starting their own companies just right. CEO, they start and they understand, you know, they're going to need a, uh, a runway. Is that the, is that the right term? Not the runway. And sure. then they have the different do we go, like, we can do an IPO, do we do this, or do we just take it all the way? And then we're going to need to bring in our own commercial people. But to Michael's point, you can't get global, global commercialization easy without a large partner. By the way, full disclosure, I've been on the yeah, this is true. The, I've been on the editorial <laughs> advisory board of pharmaceutical executive for before my time for maybe twenty years. Yeah, something like that. Twenty years. But uh, the reason I mention that is um, I've seen how the relative the relative importance of biotech in your publication has changed over time, right? Yeah, which is a reflection of how. The relationship between biotech and pharma, right? Because I, I years ago, when I first involved, you all people would only talk about, you know, Eli Lilly and yeah. Pfizer and so forth. Yeah. And then over time, there was recognition that the the that the, the issues for the biotech and relationship biotech with pharma, such that it really had to be part of your editorial yeah, your focus. Yeah, it was a it was a real positive too, I think. 
by the way, you know. Oh, and I have to pull this book. Right. Anything I heard today or anything, I don't, I'm not writing about it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I keep it in my mind, but I will not like quote anyone off the record or anything. <laughs> unless, it's really, unless it's really, yeah, unless, <laughs> unless it's really good. <laughs> Just as full disclosure, I'm sorry, go ahead. But if you want to quote them and we've yeah. got to contact us, oh, yeah, that's what I, yeah. then, uh, then I'm sure, sure that'll, that'll, that'll be fine. By the way, in terms of this relationship, you know, I started my career coming out of our business school. I joined a painting company when there were 23 people and left when there were 800 people. And all the clients are life science and so But then I spent three years at the oldest venture capital firm, J.H. Whitney, and, uh, which is the Whitney family. It's like 1946. And they made the one of the first biotech investments, which Genetics Institute. And this was a long time ago. And all I remember is the senior partner Benno Schmidt, uh, he said, you know, I have no idea how this is going to be a business. <laughs> he said, I know they can invent stuff and they're probably going to invent stuff, but I can't answer the question is how did this become a business, right? Because I don't know how they're going to sell it, I don't know how they're going to make it, whatever. That's what they say about vision I mean, exactly what they say. Is that right? Yeah. But he's cool, but how are they going to make money But he laughed. He, he laughed. He laughed because he said, you know, I never make an investment in a company where I can't say, here's how they're going to sell, here's how they make it, whatever. I never do that. So, but I'm going to make an exception here. And it turned out they went through some bumps and so forth because they were trying to figure out how to make it to a business. But it, but it, but it was it, it was the right thing to do, right? Yeah. Of course, he also invested in Minimate Orange Juice, you know, when they first started having refrigerators. Oh, and they did a test. Uh, you know, the partners sat around and they test this guy mixed up the frozen orange juice. And they, they unanimously said it tasted terrible, but they were going to invest because ultimately women refrigerators and women going to work would mean that they would sell this stuff. So but they universally said this tastes terrible. <laughs> I wonder where that market is now. Well now it's gone. It's yeah. just fresh orange juice. Now yeah. uh, now one last I would ask a kind of a funky question in a sense. And not one that we talked about when we got ready for this. Surprise it's question. It's, yeah. kind of, it's a surprise question. And it actually comes off of what Doug Long so in the chart he said. And you say, what's the what's the biggest problem for the drug industry? Now you could say, okay, inventing regulatory, whatever. But I looked at his chart where he looked, where he showed where the healthcare costs are really getting chewed up. And it's, it's hospital services, right? So the world has a finite set of dollars, right? And the healthcare costs in this country have escalated so much that it's really hurt the competitiveness of the US, right? I mean, compare the healthcare costs in the US versus other, it's a huge part of the cost and it really hurts, right? Because it's not just how much you pay someone per hour, it's all the other stuff that comes with it, you know, the insurance, so forth. So to what extent is, is will drug the industry face, is, is the escalation, ongoing escalation of hospital costs a bigger enemy than, than the other things or, or not? And, and should the pharmaceutical industry do anything about it or is it even politically acceptable to do anything about it? I so this is a bit surprised question, right? Well, don't go into 
attract your customers. So it's probably not going to come from us um, as an industry. I think hospitals and doctors and nurses for the pharmaceuticals industry to attack, you know, how they spend their money or the, the choices they make, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with the, the general principle? Well, the data is the data. You know, I was kind of shocked that it was that that high relative to everything else. But um, I don't know. You could maybe even draw it back to, to be to be honest, is it based on uh, tort reform? Because frankly, they have to run all these tests to protect themselves from liability of getting sued. And do you start with tort reform and go back from there? But the trial lawyers are really powerful lobby, and that's probably why it's a little attraction. But you think about it, if you had tort reform, in theory, you could bring down insurance costs. If you brought down insurance costs and took you know, some risk of liability. Maybe the doctors only run the test that they actually really needed to run. Yeah. Um, and you could cut some, at least that, or I think diagnostics. If you ever look at your bill from the doctor, the visits like this and then all the blood tests and everything, that's, that's yeah. yeah, big. It's a big cost. Yeah. And just why Elizabeth Holmes started with it. And then uh, insur insurance, doc doctors, the insurance they pay is just astronomical. Exactly. Lisa? Um, I don't think, I mean, pharma's got its, and when I say pharma, I mean pharma.org, you know, that they've got their, their plan and their goal, and that's what they're, I don't think they're going to go outside of that and like, like attack anybody, but I mean, maybe more education, which they, you know, they're constantly putting out there, we're only what, so much, a small percentage small percentage of the overall healthcare spend. You know, we actually do produce drugs that can keep you out of the hospital system, you know, to keep people healthier longer, not have to, you know, take, but I don't think they're gonna actually do anything, but we have a really strong role, but it's- And they're doing a lot of the same positive thing. Just yeah. like the plastics and you said, okay, you hate us, but think about all of the benefits yeah. of your everyday life. Mm -hmm. So similar, similar. And what I'll do with the last couple minutes, I want to ask if anyone in the audience would like to ask either Lisa. I should say, by the way, PDF is getting off scot free. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll like, I'll like we can throw them under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what value they create for the system commensurate to the value they get from the rebates. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. It's yeah. not true. Yeah. It's, it's right. strength. Yeah, that's right. They have a good story, but they don't. Yeah. yeah. Any questions from the audience? Anyone like that? I think there are just two maybe comments or questions. The hospital cost, and the question is, is the hospital cost, administrative cost of hospitals have gone up dramatically? You know, the CEOs sometimes they know that a So the question is, their cost increase is what? It's their administrative cost, not the cost of the patient. Actually. It's very interesting to look at that. Because if you look at all these regional hospitals, what's going on with them, the CEOs make the wonderful amount of money right and they are, I still remember when I used to, I grew up in Buffalo, the Sisters of Charity, there's a big system there, right? They had the nuns running around those hospitals. Now they have humongous charitable organizations, huge, bigger than a pharma company. That was my one point. The second part, I think as you pointed out on NIH, you know, I've been on co-business for a very long time. Still radiation and chemotherapy treats most of the patients. So I keep asking myself, all these new drugs keep coming out. Who still treat most of the patients with what? Standard care. Pancreas, which is we are involved in pancreatic cancer, and still no drug in 14 years. 19 trials have failed in the last five years. 
I'm getting my fingers crossed. I'll try this approach to read out next month. We are number 20 in stage four test test. So I keep asking myself, where is this science actually? Where is it? I mean, we still use radiation for local, for local, you know, local uh, nuclear mass, cancers, pancreatic, biliary, all that. And we still use this out of care. Telfiorox, stem cell, and vaccine. So I keep asking, where is this innovation? Where is this going? It's a little bit what you go Sure. Well, 80% of people who have solid tumors uh, don't respond to those who check. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it depends on at what point you start the treatment yeah. to check the tumor and start the treatment. It's, it's a very dynamic process. Right. And there are no biomarkers in pancreatic cancer either. People are fighting for all the time and there are no biomarkers either. We don't, know. We don't even know who to treat. Yeah. I guess those two questions from your right that you are um, as you're looking at the what like where what do you see? Um look <clears throat> standard of care to be honest overall the American healthcare system isn't that bad. Like actually if you look at like type 2 diabetes, you can actually stay on your medicines, I think. Doug, I think Doug always talks about this. You can actually have diabetes control, and you wouldn't have these uncontrolled diabetes. Mm -hmm. You would just stick to the medication. Now, look, um, I think in terms of cancer therapies, you're going to get, we're going to get better and better as the genetics get better and better. And I think that's where things are going, and that's where I think the innovation is going. Great point about checkpoints, right? There's a lot of cold tumors that have not been turned hot yet, and that's what people are looking for. But <clears throat> You think about where we were 10 years ago with no PD ones, it's kind of remarkable. True. Because you don't get that that survival curve with anything. Except, you know, maybe where you totally bleeded the marrow and had a transplant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in terms of the hospital, I don't know. It's I I suspect there's a lot of stuff going on. And they can, they do it because they can get away with it. Yeah. So I don't honestly don't know who's gonna hold them accountable. 